There once was a tree that grew in the desert. For 250 miles in every direction, it was the only tree that had managed to survive the blistering heat, swirling sandstorms, and bone-dry climate of the Tenere region of northeastern Niger. Its roots had burrowed more than 100 feet into the ground to reach a source of water. The tree of Tenere, as it became known, was an acacia, about 10 feet tall, covered mostly in thorns, but boasting a few green leaves and yellow flowers. The tree was so improbably isolated that it came to be revered by desert travelers. Throughout the tree's 300 years of life, traders would ceremonially gather around it before embarking with their salt caravans across the dunes. The tree appeared on maps of the area and was described by a French military officer as a, quote, living lighthouse, unquote. Now, astute listeners may have noticed that I've been using the past tense. That's because in 1973, despite it being the only tree in a 250-mile radius, the tree of Tenere was knocked over by a drunk truck driver. Its remains were moved to the Nigerian National Museum, and a metal sculpture now stands in its place. Equal parts maddening and hilarious, this story is, nonetheless, a perfect metaphor for humanity's long, love-hate relationship with trees. Hi, I'm Nate Hinchy, and this is Cool Shit, the podcast. This is a show about interesting topics from science, history, the arts, and more. In other words, if it fascinates me, I'm going to talk about it. I know that the world can sometimes seem like an awfully depressing place, but trust me when I say, there's some pretty cool shit out there. So first things first, what is a tree? Well, that's a great question, Nate. As it turns out, there really isn't a single scientific definition. In the broadest sense, trees are just plants with really big stems. Some biologists go further and say that trees need to produce wood and grow both taller and wider. But using that definition, a banana tree would be classified as a giant herb. Even a Joshua tree, which also has it right there in the name, might technically not be a tree because it doesn't produce growth rings, which is, of course, the way that we usually measure how old a tree is. But since there's no scientific consensus, and because this is starting to make me question my fundamental understanding of the English language, let's move on. Where do trees come from? Well, this is what Joyce Kilmer would have us believe. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Lovely poem, but the real answer is evolution. Trees first evolved about 350 million years ago. At one point, scientists thought that trees might be even older than that, but it turns out that the 400-million-year-old fossil they were looking at, which appeared to have grown about 20 to 25 feet in the air, 
was in fact, and I'm quoting an actual paleobiologist here, a humongous fungus. The earliest trees looked a lot like big ferns, which I suppose is sort of how evolution is supposed to work. About 320 million years ago, trees like conifers first emerged. These were the ancestors of today's cedars, pines, and firs. It's important to note that just as there is no single definition of tree, there is no taxonomic category for trees. Which is to say, two kinds of trees might look an awful lot alike and might do a lot of the same things to survive, but they might still not be closely related. This is called parallel evolution, where plants and animals end up similar because they both evolved facing the same kind of evolutionary pressures. I would explain to you the difference between parallel and convergent evolution, but I couldn't figure it out. If anyone wants to write in and explain that to me, please use smaller words than the ones in the Wikipedia articles that I read. For the most part, the trees of the Triassic period are now gone, though there are a few that are still kicking. For example, ginkgo biloba, or the ginkgo tree, dates back about 270 million years and has been referred to as, quote, the most ancient living tree, unquote. For thousands of years, ginkgo has been used by humans to treat a whole slew of ailments, including erectile dysfunction, which I think probably goes a long way in explaining why we made damn sure it survived. During the Mesozoic era, conifers basically had the run of the place. As the climate warmed during the Cretaceous and Tertiary periods, flowering trees evolved and elbowed their way onto the world stage. These were the ancestors of the deciduous trees we know today, like maples, elms, aspens, and birch trees. This seems like as good a point as any to get into the distinction between evergreen trees, like pines, and deciduous trees, whose leaves fall every year. So why go through all that trouble? Why do we fall, So that we can learn to pick ourselves up. Not exactly, Alfred. Leaves fall because they can become a liability during the winter. In the colder months, leaves leak water and other valuable resources. And when it gets really cold, the water in the leaves might freeze, which can cause serious damage to the tree. Because deciduous trees can grow their leaves back pretty easily in the spring, they opt to play it safe. Pine trees, on the other hand, tend to grow at northern latitudes, where winters are long and sunlight is a precious commodity. Because of this, pines don't want to waste a lot of time growing leaves every year when they could be spending that time photosynthesizing instead. Basically, pines are like the Jersey Shore meatheads of the tree world, adopting a suns-out-guns-out approach in order to survive. To make sure their needles don't freeze when temperatures drop, pines pump them full of oil, which we, in turn, use to make floor cleaners smell nice. Using these two basic approaches, trees have taken root, pun intended, in nearly all of the world's ecosystems. There are, currently, about 3 trillion trees around the globe, making up some 60,000 unique species. And with this many friends and family rolling around, it's a good thing that trees are surprisingly social creatures. Forests are, quite literally, communities of trees. The older trees of a forest provide shelter to the younger trees. They protect them from wind and storms that might break their comparatively soft branches and trunks, or even rip their still-growing roots right out of the ground. The forest canopy, or all the tops of the individual trees, 
also regulates the amount of sunlight that can get to the forest floor. This may seem counterintuitive. Even I, as a political science major back in the day, know enough about plant science to be able to say that sunlight plays a pretty important role in the lives of trees. But too much sunlight can dry out the ground, and so forests serve to collectively strike a balance between the availability of sun and water, the older trees creating the ideal environment for their children to grow slowly and steadily. If it sounds like I'm anthropomorphizing trees, well, that's very much intentional. Anyone who has ever seen a tree that's fallen over knows how deep and wide roots can grow. But what's harder to see is an even more far-reaching fungal network that taps into the roots. Fungi have these little tubes called hyphae, sort of like tiny fungal fingers, that can grow into a tree's roots and siphon off water, nutrients, and other microscopic compounds. For a long time, scientists just sort of assumed these fungi were parasites, letting the trees do all the hard work and living the good life underground. But we now know that fungi and trees are symbiotic, or, to be more biologically accurate, mutualistic. In other words, they're both into it. You see, the fungal fingers don't just weave their way into one root system. They can connect with dozens of trees in a given area. And though the fungus is definitely taking its fair share, some fungi take up to one-third of the total food a tree produces, it's also passing resources between the trees. Through this fungal network, older trees can feed and nurture younger trees until they grow tall enough to reach the canopy themselves. What's more, trees seem to be able to target where their resources go. Trees can sense if their neighbors are weak or dying, and will pump them full of sugar in order to help them survive. Foresters have found stumps of trees that are still clinging to life, even hundreds of years after they've been felled. A stump can't photosynthesize on its own, so the only explanation is that surrounding trees are keeping their friend, family member, coworker, however you want to look at it, they're keeping them alive. And it doesn't stop at food, either. Some studies have shown that trees connected by this mycorrhizal network, which is the official term, though I much prefer the phrase fungal fingers, respond better to outside threats than unconnected trees. So, for example, a tree becomes infested with aphids and starts producing chemicals to try and fight them off. Some of these chemicals travel through the fungal fingers and enter the roots of nearby trees. These trees might have no aphids on them at all, but they begin to produce the defensive chemical anyway, having been alerted by their neighbor that the little bastards were coming. Hopefully with enough lead time, because these signals travel at the speed of about a third of an inch per minute. These trees are, in effect, talking to each other, albeit a bit more slowly than we can talk amongst ourselves. Mm, but you must understand, young hobbit, takes a long time to say anything in old Entish, and we never say anything unless it is worth taking a long time to say. But before we romanticize tree socialism too much, let's just remember again that trees aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. By saving a neighbor, a tree can help keep the forest strong. And when the forest is strong, individual trees have a better chance of survival. Plus, trees aren't just pumping their resources out into the world without regard for who's on the receiving end. Trees can recognize their own kin. 
and scientists have observed that trees form more fungal connections with their own offspring, send them more resources, and even draw back or redirect their roots in order to give younger trees more room to grow. Because of this, some scientists have come to call them mother trees, which admittedly sounds like something out of Ferngully the Last Rainforest, but it also seems to be a pretty accurate description of what's really going on. As I mentioned before, things happen slowly in the woods. Trees can live a very long time. The oldest tree in the world is a bristlecone pine in California's White Mountains, appropriately named Methuselah. It has lived for over 5,000 years. To give you a sense of perspective, that was right around the time that writing was first invented in ancient Mesopotamia. Woolly mammoths were still strutting their stuff when this tree first sprouted. And while it's cheating a little bit, there are clonal tree colonies that are even older than that. Clonal colonies are basically a single tree that has made a bunch of copies of itself, all of which are connected by a single root system. And so while the original version of the tree might technically no longer be around, the colony is still making copies of copies of itself. In Utah, there's a colony of 47,000 quaking aspen trees that are all connected to one another below ground and are all genetically identical. So by some definitions, this forest is actually a single organism that has spread itself out over 105 acres and weighs around 13 million pounds. The colony might be anywhere from 80,000 to 1 million years old. Again, to add some perspective, that range is the equivalent of older than the development of the bow and arrow on the low end, and slightly younger than the first human ancestors to leave Africa on the high end. Since we're already discussing big numbers, the tallest trees in the world are of course the redwoods, found in northern California. They can easily reach a height of 300 feet, which is about as tall as the Statue of Liberty. The tallest tree in the world, a redwood called Hyperion, is 379.7 feet tall. Its exact location is kept a secret. As you know, there's got to be at least one asshole out there who would just want to screw it up for the rest of us. Anyway, while trees can live for thousands of years, given the right circumstances, it's the exception rather than the rule. Trees can die for any number of reasons. In fact, if something penetrates a tree's bark, which, because it's dead, is more like our fingernails than our skin, it can get to the cambium, the inner part of the tree that's actually alive. And once that happens, all bets are off. Whether because of a storm or an infestation of beetles, if the cambium is sufficiently disturbed or exposed, the tree dies. Still, death is just a part of life. So when a tree dies, the canopy opens. Sunlight floods in. Younger trees that have been biding their time near the forest floor grow more rapidly. The strongest of these fill the hole in the canopy, begin photosynthesizing, and send resources down to their own offspring. A mother dies to let one of her children take her place. And so, all the trees are connected in the great circle of life. Of course, not all trees die of natural causes. Like I said before, there are about 3 trillion trees in the world today. 12,000 years ago, 
scientists estimate there were about 6 trillion. And a lot of this decline can be attributed to us. After the rise of agriculture, humans began tearing down trees to make way for crops. And even when trees were already producing food, as is the case with fruit trees, nut trees, and trees like maples, whose sap we use to make syrup, we couldn't help but fiddle with them. For orchards and plantations, fewer trees spaced farther apart leads to better yields. But like I said, that's not necessarily how trees want to grow. Trees have also been used as fuel, dating back as far as the Neanderthals. Using wood to cook meat allowed our ancestors to up their caloric intake, which in turn helped them develop larger brains. We then used those brains to devise more ingenious ways of cutting down trees. And even with the advent of fossil fuels, wood remained a cheap and easy way to cook, keep warm, and stay safe. For those of us in the developed world, wood fires are more of a luxury than a necessity, but wood remains the primary source of fuel for millions around the globe. Quick tangent. If you're the kind of person who likes to build campfires, you probably already know that birch bark makes for excellent tinder. This is because birch trees tend to produce papery bark that has a very high oil content in order to ward off predators. I wish I could tell you that knowing that fact will help you build fires more easily, but that has certainly not been the case for me. Trees have also, since time immemorial, been used as lumber, allowing us to build houses, ships, furniture, and Jenga blocks. In the U.S. alone, we use about 187 billion pounds of paper each year. That paper takes about 4 billion trees to produce, which represents about a quarter of all the trees cut down every year around the world. And even when we're not intentionally tearing them down, we still somehow manage to screw trees over. Earlier I mentioned that trees have developed some very cool defense mechanisms to protect themselves against natural predators. They can even call upon other species to help out. For example, elms and pines, after sensing that they are swarming with caterpillars that are looking to gobble up all of their leaves, will release a chemical into the air that attracts wasps. These wasps then lay their eggs inside of the caterpillars, and as the wasp larvae develop, they basically eat the caterpillar alive from the inside out. Elms and pines ain't nothing to fuck with. But these kind of defense mechanisms evolve slowly over the course of millennia. If you just up and introduce some foreign pest, trees aren't going to be able to react quickly enough to stand a chance. And that is the story of the American chestnut. At its peak, there were more than 4 billion American chestnuts on the East Coast, making up about 25% of all trees in the Appalachian Mountains. The chestnut trees were a huge part of the regional economy. The trees would drop millions of pounds of nuts onto the forest floor every year, which not only fed wildlife, but helped to support local livestock farming as well. Chestnuts also grew tall and straight and were resistant to rot, making them ideal sources of lumber. But at some point in the late 19th century, a fungus hitched a ride with humans from Asia to the Appalachians. And as helpful as fungi have been to trees so far in this podcast, that is not always the case. What would come to be known as the chestnut blight was first reported in New York in 1904. The fungus ate its way through the tree's bark, all the way to the cambium, killing the tree. It didn't destroy the roots, but trees that had once reached heights of more than 100 feet were now reduced to sickly shrubs, no more than a couple feet tall. The blight spread like wildfire. American chestnuts had no defenses to fight back against the Asian fungus, and within a few decades, 
the American chestnut was functionally extinct. Nearly all of the 4 billion trees were killed. Today, there are maybe 100 trees in the entire country that come anywhere close to rivaling the size of the pre-blight chestnuts. The economic and environmental toll of the blight was almost impossible to calculate. And I haven't even gotten started on human-sparked forest fires or the dozens of other ways we've conjured to destroy trees. Thankfully, we humans can also use our powers for good. In 2010, scientists genetically engineered a blight-resistant American chestnut tree. But further testing and government approval is needed before the tree can be planted in the wild. Going back to the first American Arbor Day in 1872, when one million trees were planted in Nebraska, reforestation has become a rallying cry around the world. In 1981, China called on all of its citizens, 11 years of age or older, to each plant between three to five trees every year. In early 2018, the United Kingdom announced a plan to plant 50 million new trees and build a coast-to-coast forest across the middle of the country. Still, humans cut down about 15 billion trees every year. Good intentions are a fine start, but there is much more work yet to be done. Okay, the mood is getting a little morose. Let's perk things up a bit. Giant redwood! Larch! The fir! The mighty Scots pine! What about my bloody parrot? The smell of fresh-cut timber! The crash of mighty trees! With my best girl by my side, we'd sing, sing, sing! I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday I go shopping and have buttered scones for tea. He cuts down trees, he eats his lunch, he goes to the lavatory. On Wednesday he goes shopping and has buttered scones for tea. Because of how ancient, ubiquitous, and useful trees are, it should come as no surprise that they play a significant role in almost all of humanity's religions and mythologies. In the Abrahamic faiths, the tree of life, which may or may not also be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and led to the fall of man. Of course, today, Christians decorate trees and put them up in their houses to celebrate the birth of their Savior, so at some point along the way, they must have decided to forgive and forget. The squashing of that beef likely happened as Christianity was expanding through Europe, and early Christians were looking for ways to warm quote-unquote pagans up to the idea of adopting a new religion. Trees play a big role in Germanic and Celtic myth. In fact, the word druid, which was used to describe Celtic religious leaders, might derive from the Celtic word for an oak grove, which is where the priests and shamans would conduct their rituals. There's also the idea of a world tree, which can be found in religions literally around the world, from Central America to Mongolia. The world tree, or axis mundi, is said to connect heaven and earth, and is the point around which all existence revolves. In Norse mythology, the world tree is called Yggdrasil, a massive ash tree that connects the nine spiritual and terrestrial worlds in Norse cosmology. Legend has it that Odin, chief of the Norse gods, sacrificed himself on Yggdrasil 
in order to peer into the underworld and gain ancient knowledge. In Arabian folklore, jinn, the spirits we've anglicized into genies, live in sacred trees. An Iroquois legend tells the story of the great peacemaker, who united five warring tribes into a single powerful confederacy by asking tribal leaders to bury their weapons underneath a white pine that came to be known as the Tree of Peace. A tribe in West Africa plant a tree whenever a child is born. If the tree grows slowly, it's considered an omen of bad health. When the tree flowers, it's time for the child to be married. The Buddha attained enlightenment beneath the shade of a fig tree, and a descendant of that tree, called the Bodh Gaya, is an important place of pilgrimage for Buddhists even today. The award for weirdest tree myth, though, has to go to the Egyptians. The Tale of Two Brothers, written around 1200 BC, tells the story of, you guessed it, two brothers, one of whom is not once, but twice turned into a sacred tree. I'll spare you all the details, but the highlights of the story include one of the brothers chopping off his genitalia and feeding them to a catfish, and a splinter from one of the brother trees ending up in a woman's mouth and impregnating her. Which is an unorthodox way of fathering children, I'll grant you, but when a catfish has your junk, you gotta improvise. Just like mythology, popular culture is riddled with trees. There are the planet-destroying baobabs and the little prince, the truffle trees from the Lorax, the white tree of Gondor from Lord of the Rings, not to mention Treebeard and the rest of the Ents. There's the Whomping Willow from Harry Potter, the Keebler Elf tree, Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy, and of course, the famous Springfield Lemon Tree. The town of Springfield was born on that day, and to mark that sweet moment, our people planted this lemon tree. Lemons being the sweetest fruit available at the time. But the most famous tree in popular culture, if you're asking me at least, is Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. The poem is a little too long to go through in its entirety, and since I'm sure you all know the basic gist already, I'll just read the last part. And after a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I am too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I am too tired to climb, said the boy. I am sorry, sighed the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I am sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. there's apparently a lot of controversy on the internet about what the giving tree represents. Controversy on the internet. I know. I didn't believe it myself either. 
Some say it's a poem about motherhood, while others say it's the story of an abusive relationship. Some call it a religious allegory. Some people claim it's a warning, alternatively about the growing influence of the welfare state or the inhumanity of late-stage capitalism. I don't know how many of those interpretations are genuine and which are just clickbait articles, but in any event, if you're looking for my opinion, and I assume you are since you're still listening, it's a story about a tree. Trees give us so much. Shelter, food, warmth, beauty, mystery. To say nothing of air, which is also pretty important. But what they have to offer is finite. We take from them mindlessly at our own peril. So sure, poems don't have to be read at face value. They probably shouldn't be. But if all Shell intended to do was remind us how awesome trees are and how essential it is that we cherish and care for them, well, in my mind, that'd still be some very cool shit. Thank you all for listening. If you've liked what you've heard so far, I'd be ecstatic if you rate, review, subscribe to, and share cool shit. You can also drop us a line, either via email at coolshitcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at coolshitcast. Cool Shit's music is by Arnie Bang Hughesby. Thanks, Arnie. Until next time.